This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular, personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Hello and welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. My name is Graham Fierce, one of Mercer's global consultants based in Munich in Germany. And today we'll be discussing the longevity economy. So what do we mean by the longevity economy? Really here we're talking about the challenges and opportunities from two key trends that we've been seeing and continue to see. Firstly, life expectancy has been increasing. In 1950, the global average life expectancy was 48 years. And by 2019, that had risen to 73 years. And the increase is being the, the largest in the developing economies. In most developed economies, the baby boomers are now hitting retirement age and falling fertility rates over recent decades means that fewer workers are now joining the workforce than are leaving into retirement. Both of these trends mean that we can expect fewer workers for each retiree in future and potentially fewer workers overall. In addition, the longer life expectancy means that people will need to save more for their retirement and many existing retirement systems will become unaffordable as there are fewer workers for each retiree. So to discuss the implications of all of this, I am very grateful that we are joined together by three leaders in this field. Alan Nazari from the World Economic Forum. Alan leads the Longevity Economy Project. Ramsey Alwyn who is President and CEO of the National Council on Aging in the USA, and Lin Shi, a colleague of mine, a global consultant from Mercer in the USA, who is on full-time secondment at the moment to the World Economic Forum, working on the Longevity Economy Project. Thank you for joining us. So first, I'd like to ask Ale if you could explain some of the issues that we're trying to address and some of the key outputs that you've seen so far. Sure, Graham. I'd be happy to. And I just want to thank you for having me on this podcast. It has been such a pleasure to work with Mercer on this issue for the past few years. It's been a great partnership. Um, what we're trying to do at the World Economic Forum with this initiative of the Longevity Economy is to raise the profile of this issue to make this topic um, as important as many of the other issues we talk about on a day-to-day -day basis, on the news, in the papers, where I don't think it quite is at this point. As you said, um, everyone, everywhere in the world is aging right now. Almost every country at some point in the next 20 years will have more people over the age of 60 than children under the age of five. And that is going to... Um, create some opportunities and some challenges that I don't think we're quite prepared for here. So the questions that we started to ask um, as, as we saw the demographics changing of what was ahead of us is 
how, how do people fund these extra years in retirement? What does that look like? Is the public sector ready for that? Are jobs uh, ready to possibly have five generations of workers working side by side? Are they going to be functional and secure for an older person? Um, other questions include, how will this affect women, for example, who live on average five years longer than men, um, normally make less money than men, and are usually the ones who are taking time off for caregiving duty, thus decreasing their retirement savings? So these are just some of the questions that came up when we started to think about how these demographic changes are going to impact uh, people, individuals, workers, companies, the society at large, and what kind of solutions, and answers, and help we might be able to provide. Because we, we basically have one goal with this, with this initiative and the work we're doing, I think, that we all agree on at the end of the day. Our goal is to support a resilient, sustainable, and equitable long life where hopefully no one retires into poverty. So that was the overall focus of what we're doing. Oh, thank you very much, Hallie. And uh, Ramsey, perhaps you could uh, chip in to discuss uh, the role of the National Council on Ageing and what are your key priorities and why they're your key priorities. Well, thanks so much for having us. Really, really pleased to see this topic being elevated as the mega trend that it is globally. Longevity has so much promise, so much opportunity, but uh, we really need to be thoughtful and intentional about how we maximize the opportunity that longevity provides. At the National Council on Aging, uh, we've been helping older adults navigate these key life moments with tools and resources and best practices, and we've been advocating for policies to really be proud relevant to their quality of life since 1950. The National Council on Aging was the first um, U.S.-based national aging organization, and we really see ourselves as the voice of all older adults, especially those struggling, um, to ensure all can age well in America. So our key priorities now really are helping older adults and those that care for them with their most pressing needs. So we have work related to helping older adults um, with job training and job placement, get connected to basic programs and supports that can help them pay for food and medicine and other needs, uh, programs that are evidence-based that can help them navigate their chronic condition, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and so many other chronic conditions that in the U.S. are highly likely um, to be an experience that we have as we age. We also have a body of work related to helping uh, utilize evidence-based interventions to prevent falls and to help older adults gain access to life-saving vaccinations. We take all of our insights from administering programs directly to older adults and in partnership with thousands of community-based organizations across the country, and we apply those insights to our advocacy efforts where we really position ourselves with Congress and with uh, the White House to be a voice on behalf of older adults and the, some of the challenges they experience domestically in the U.S. Thanks, Ramsey. And and uh, Lynn, I think it's fair to say that you're representing the younger generation in this podcast. And I'd be interested to hear what you see uh, in the Generation Z world. So what do you see as the key issues and how do you view the longevity economy? Thank you, Graham. Uh, well, 
it's interesting because I feel, like you said, that really representing, I suppose, the younger generation on this conversation here. And it's really an honor to be here with the people that I personally really admire and respect and talking about the issues around longevity. Um, I might think about the issues around longevity a bit more than most of my generations around Gen Z and, and, and millennial generation. Um, mostly just given the, the nature of our work and the focus that we've had on on uh, on thinking about sustainability of retirement systems and uh, and healthy aging as an actuary. But uh, I, I do love that the way that Hala has always described this initiative around um, longevity economy and the work that the World Economic Forum and Mercer have done on this is really thinking about how it affects people of all generations. Um, especially in, in, even in the way that we talk about longevity economy, that it's really about financial resilience for all, um, given, as Akala mentioned as well, that we all are aging. And it, it's not so much just about how do we take care of our currently older generations, but just as each of us ages into, um, uh, ages into a different state in, in the future, how do we ensure that the, the world that we're creating is sustainable and equitable? Um, I wanted to touch on maybe three key themes that I've heard um, in, in talking with peers and, and others uh, around some of the concerns and opportunities around longevity um, and key emotional themes. I think the three that I hear um, and, and in summary are around anxiety, trust, and anticipation. And I also wanted to call back some of the, the key data points that we've heard if, 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 uh, if the listener has gotten a chance to, to read. There's a report that Mercer and the forum jointly put together called the longevity uh, on longevity called living longer better understanding longevity literacy and i just wanted to call out a few key stats from that topic because i think this links very strongly back to the work that we're talking about today on this on this podcast um and in particular i mean around anxiety and and, and trust and anticipation i think that some of the anxieties are, are quite evident and uh, as wherever you're listening to this podcast around the world, I imagine you're probably experiencing natural disasters that are different from what you would have anticipated in this year. And so there's so much fear around um, uh, that I've heard generationally around climate and what does that look like going forward. But um, but also not just in the sustainability of our, our, our natural systems, but also in our social systems. And as a result of that, um, uh, and, and talking also about how that relates to our intergenerational sense of community and, and and support of one another. Under the age of 40, they're 50% more likely to say that they will be lonely in retirement than those over the age of 40. So there's not only a concern from a sustainability perspective of um, the financial needs, but also from a sustainability perspective of how do we also ensure a sense of community and collaboration um, and sense of belonging as, as people age. Um, the second theme that I wanted to hit on was trust. And I think that there's a change in the way that we engage with our social systems and, and engage with information and within the younger generation. Um, those under the age of 40 mentioned that they are eight times more likely to trust uh, social media or financial advice, uh, which is uh, which is an interesting statistic because there's such a, a movement a, away from potentially traditional institutional ways of absorbing information and more of a movement towards peer-to-peer and really understanding how to meet people where they are in terms of the information that's really relevant to them for their own financial resilience long-term. And then the third theme that I wanted to hit on is uh, anticipation for the future. And so not just the the doom and gloom of the fear and the concern, but really thinking about what does it mean to 
to be excited for what the future will bring. Um, a, a number of the responses from the survey indicated an excitement for the the, the freedom and the flexibility and time um, that that we will have as as uh, as there's this increase in longevity and increase in lifespan and hopefully also health span. Um, but 93% of individuals under the age of 40 noted that they would be happy to reskill and retrain as they continue looking forward to their uh, their evolution and their roles and their their work and really changing the way that we're thinking about uh, how we engage with work and how that integrates with our, our overall life um, and our overall life balance. And I feel especially in a lot of the spaces that I work in that are really focused around global social impact as well, that there's a strong desire for people within the young generation to really make a strong impact in the world to ensure the sustainability and the equity of the systems for future generations as well. Now, excellent. If I can go back to, and I'll come back to some of those points later, I, I'm sure. I want to pick up on something that Halla said at the, in her introduction, which was that women on average live around five years longer than men um, and that they're more likely to take career breaks. Studies that we've done show that in many developed economies, the gender pensions gap, so the amount of pension that women get, is, is around 40% less than the male counterpart. Um, when we think about the aging economy and the fact that probably more people will be needing care in future and the burden that that could put on on those that are in the working age um you know that situation doesn't look like it's going to get any better given the the, the demographic developments so Halle, did you have any thoughts around what actions uh, are necessary in order to try to mitigate some of those effects sure i'd be happy to so um going back to the report that that um, Lynn referenced what that report um, actually was a new pulse poll that Mercer that you guys did, where you query people all around the world, mostly young people, on their views of what they think uh, a hundred year life looks like, basically. And one of one of the most interesting statistics was that two thirds of respondents said that they feel they will likely be caregivers in the future, um, and that is a really big number and probably quite true because things have sort of changed in how we view caregiving responsibilities. It is now both for our children and for many people, for their parents, you know, the sandwich generation, which many people are part of. I think one of the, um, I think one of the most important ways that we can, we can tackle that issue is to have workers offer time off for, for both of those things. So it's not just when somebody has a child, but also if somebody needs to take care of an older uh, parent or a relative of some sort, that caregiving is just going to be part of our future going forward and what that means. Uh, I, I think caregiving is actually another thing within our social system that many people are not really prepared to figure out how to deal with as well. At this point, it's simply one person drops out of the workforce to take care of the others, but there has to be a more systemic kind of organizational way that we address this issue moving forward, uh, where we get help from across a variety of spectrums. Well, Hala, I'd love to pick up on some of those themes. I mean, we know that caregiving has that outsized impact on women's ability to continue to work. Um, and given that they're usually the ones leaving their jobs for care for children early in their career and older adults later in life. But there are some interesting trends that are broadening the awareness of populations around 
um, how critical caregiving is and how when there is no care, there is no work. When we look at the trends in the United States, an estimated 10 million millennials care for an aging loved one. So that's one in four family caregivers is a millennial. Um, and of course, it's creating an inflection point and an opportunity to think about what do they want their aging experience to be, but also what are the implications uh, for their ability to work and save when providing that care. Additionally, with the pandemic, men and women experience those caregiving challenges, helping keep children um, focused on distance learning, helping for uh, older, frailer loved ones. And I think there was a greater awakening by employers um, of the important role of those uh, employees when it comes to their unpaid family duties and the need for the employer to exercise more flexibility. But I fully agree with you that we need to create a comprehensive system of care at both ends of the life spectrum better, more robust care, and those jobs need to be quality jobs when it comes to child care. And then the same thing goes for elder care. We need to make sure we're really thoughtful about investing in the direct care workforce so that we can eliminate in the U.S. the wait lists around accessing those uh, care providers. Uh, we need to make sure those jobs are quality jobs so we can attract talent. And then we need to make sure there's more um, workforce available and support for people who need the services and need to be creative about financing them. And then we need to revisit our social contract. Many of our policies are built on the assumption of a 1950s household where the um, the agreement was someone did stay home and cover the caregiving responsibilities while the breadwinner could go out and earn the dollars that could allow everything to be financed. So much has changed over the decades, and yet our policy is built on that antiquated understanding of workforce pa patterns and domestic duty allocation. We need to revisit that, and we need to have a comprehensive understanding about our entire um, our entire need as a society and as an economy to be more robust in providing uh, the types of resources and infrastructure that can allow economic growth and security for our economy, but also for individuals themselves. And when we talk about that pension gap that women experience, it's driven not just by often pay inequity, lower wages due to occupational segregation into jobs, um, but also by the fact that our government pensions like Social Security in the United States do not honor those caregiver contributions. I think there's some exciting discussion underway and growing public um, opinion around the need to recognize, honor, and compensate those contributions uh, long overdue. But um, I think there could be some movement on the horizon in terms of tax credits around um, recognizing those caregiver contributions, future reform of Social Security, um, recognizing those caregiver credit uh, contributions as well. And we're optimistic and um, advocating for, for those types of um, changes in terms of our policies, because really, it's such a significant contribution. We need to honor all that caregiving and find a new way to address um, the economic implications for individuals and for society.
Uh, great points, Ramsey. And I think it's interesting to hear you to speak on the topic there, that actually the issues you raised are absolutely the same issues that we're facing in just about every country in Europe as well and in many other countries around the world. Um, another another problem that I guess we're going to face with the aging population and that pressure, especially people who are having to take time out for caregiving, is that there will be fewer workers being productive in the economy. Um, and we're already reading in, in just about every country around the world around the pressures on the healthcare systems. How can we try to address some of those issues to reduce the pressure on the healthcare systems and, and allow better access to healthcare for everybody? Well, not specific to healthcare, but I wanted to address the first part of your question here is uh, relating to how do we potentially increase opportunities for people to remain in the workforce and potentially that will allow uh, for uh, some of these systems, as Ramsey mentioned, and, and as you mentioned as well, Graham, uh, but to ensure their sustainability going forward as well, whether it's our retirement systems, whether it's our healthcare systems. Um, and I, I think I wanted to take an example. Uh, Hala and I recently had a conversation with um, uh, the, the, the uh, some of the leaders of an organization in Singapore called Build's Future um, that had a really interesting discussion around what does it mean to uh, reskill and upskill, um, especially as individuals are traditionally aging out of the workforce, and how to support organizations in creating safe and supportive environments for their aging workforce. And, and Paula, please, after I finish this, please, please feel free to jump in as well. Um, and I, I wanted to also uh, call back to a statistic that, um, as as we mentioned earlier in the the poll survey in the report um, of individuals talking about whether or not uh, responding to the question of how they see their retirement. And and I think that this might be different than maybe what a traditional policymaker thinks of when they think of retirement in, in that we're moving, uh, that individuals themselves are choosing to move away from traditional notions of retirement where potentially they work at the same job until they hit the age of 65 and then they retire. And then potentially they're, they're more of an in, in a consumption state as opposed to an active contributory state in the economy. Um, for example, one of the stats that I just wanted to share was that um, of the respondents, um, who who responded to the survey, and this is people from all generations, a while uh, 30% of them mentioned that they would like to retire before the age of 60. 41% of them actually mentioned that they would like to continue working at the past the age of 65. And so I, I, I highlight that because I think it, it points to the idea that the, the notion of the traditional retirement age being age 65, and then that's when everyone sort of um, exit the workforce and they they go on to retirement and, and do retirement related things. I think that notion of what it means to work and to retire is shifting, and and I think that may address some of what you're you're suggesting, Graham, in terms of how do we um, look into sustainability of our social systems that less potentially one where someone contributes and then they they take from the system. It's more how do we ensure that everyone has the opportunity if if they have the the, the capability and the interests to still be able to participate. If I, if I could build on what both Lynn and Ramsey just said, Graham, I think the most interesting thing about this topic is how much of a mindset shift is needed from, from all of us when we think about this. Uh, Ramsey pointed out how we need to rethink caregivers. Lynn pointed out how we need to rethink skills. I think we all need to think about what it means as we live these longer lives. I think everyone's kind of heard us talk about the end of the three-stage life that we all used to know where we went to school, went to work and retired. You know, now we're in a, a multi-stage life where we go in and out of work. 
we absolutely will need to rethink um, our skills and what we need to learn as we get older. And we have to think about saving in a different way, not just saving for the end of our life, but saving throughout our life for the many different things that come. I think that mindset shift also extends to the stakeholders that we engage in this conversation. This is a very multi-stakeholder initiative. We have um, the private sector, we have the policymakers, we have civil society, we have academics, and then we're always thinking about the individual at the end um, and how to help them retire sustainably and equitably. For the private sector, it's thinking about your workers and what that looks like and the even the retirement plans that you create for them, but also the work that they do. For policymakers, it's to think more creatively about the people who have been left behind at something that Ramsey already covered. And I think the most important thing is really for individuals um, to rethink what they want their life to look like and what that long life looks like. And I, I think if we all do this mindset shift in every way, I think we can tackle these problems in a, in a much better light going forward because it, it just we need to change the way we've done things in the past because we haven't. That's the other problem. Our retirement systems, our pension systems, haven't been changed in the last 50 to 70 years, the way we work, the way we go to school. So that's, I think, the most exciting part of this initiative and work we're doing is trying to create some new ideas. So I'd like to build on Hala's point about that mind shift change, because it really is so important. Longevity literacy and the framework from the report really helps broaden our view about what it takes to live a long and healthy life. And to think more expansively about the many assets we can draw upon as we navigate that multi-stage nonlinear life. So, of course, we should be saving, we should be investing, we should be attentive to those assets to make sure they grow in a healthy way. And we should apply that same thoughtfulness to our other assets, our health, our skills and work options, our relationships and social connections our community resources, and everything else we have at our disposal to ensure we live a long, healthy life. Those are different types of assets than we traditionally consider, but they're just as essential in navigating this new normal that is increased longevity. We should give those assets the same caring, nurturing, required to make sure we can make the most of these additional years, to ensure they are quality years, not just quantity years, so we can truly enjoy the gift that is longevity. Thank you for that. And um, you've all mentioned the need to save and, and save up for retirement in, in different ways. Lynn mentioned earlier that uh, you know, an increasing number of younger people are looking to social media for financial advice. I uh, hopefully am not the only person that that uh, that scares to to some degree. And you know, maybe that's also not being helped by the fact that increasing legis legislation and regulation around giving financial advice means that actually access to financial advice can be limited due to the high costs of of actually purchasing that advice. Uh, does anybody have any good ideas as to how we could improve the access to quality financial education? I could give it an attempt, Grim, and I would love to actually hear your input on this in particular because I know it's something that Grim, you've thought significantly about. Um, I think 
I wanted to actually highlight an example from an, an, someone that we've spoken to recently where, as we're thinking about building out the longevity economy initiative, as Hala mentioned, from the multi-stakeholder public-private sector approach. Um, we recently spoke with someone in Singapore who, who had been leading a lot of the work as related to skills, but it also drove our uh, ability to learn more about what the, the government is doing in terms of providing access to financial education for everyone. And the, the Singapore has actually a website called moneysense.gov. Uh, or sorry, uh, the Singapore version of .gov. <laughs> and, and and that uh, provides an opportunity for really anyone around the country, uh, citizens, residents, to really be able to learn about money um, from the perspective of uh, of just uh, from an educational perspective and, and what that means for, for their personal ability to save for the future, to retire, to 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 buy a home. And, and so there's a lot of opportunity potentially for public-private interaction, as Hello was mentioning with the multi-stakeholder approach, that there's a, a, we're seeing a growing interest even across the private sector to say that you know, rather than being the, the creators of the financial education, there's a, a greater interest in being the distributor or being the, the, the avenue through which an individual can learn about services and information. And so there's a really a greater role that the public sector had the opportunity to really play here to say, that they're, you know, here's uh, to provide guidance that's, that's available in an impartial and equitable and universal way, really, that, that people can actually access this information and not have it be behind, as Graham, you mentioned, a paywall. Um, and another conversation uh, topic that's come up in, in, in recent discussions is around what does it mean to actually be financially literate? And what does it mean to feel that an individual has the capacity to make changes in their own lives from a financial perspective. And so part of that is going to be access to information, access to potential planning and resources. And we're seeing more of that um, blossoming, I think, in the, the private sector as well, where um, more and more organizations now, thanks to the advent of additional technology in the fintech space, are providing some of these financial planning and resources through the employer channel to individual employees. And that's all very well and good and exciting. And that'll allow an individual to be able to to, to grow um, their awareness of what their current state is and how to potentially reach those financial goals and more of a one-on-one level. Um, but there's also kind of the notion that a lot of times people hold um, a number of different competing and difficult emotions as it relates to finances. And I think that's something that as society we need to be better at addressing is how do we hold space and, and create community where people can share some of the things that are really challenging for them from like whether it's the shame or guilt or fear, whatever it is, relates to money. And so from that, being able to use that as an, as a jumping off point to then start actually being able to tackle some of the different financial education and concerns. Because we've seen from research that while financial literacy and education are important in understanding what to do, sometimes it's the emotional aspect that stops people from actually being able to take action to then be able to save for that future. So really thinking about how do we address from an educational and informational perspective, as well as an emotional perspective, and then how do we really balance some of the different opportunities um, between public and private sector to then actually take help an individual take action and improve their own financial situation for for in the present as well as saving towards the future. To your point, Graham. Yeah, I'd agree with that, and I mean, I think probably it, we should start off in the schools. Um, so people really early on get some feeling as to how to structure their finances and also to get an idea as to what they might need to save up and what sort of insurances they might need to cover life's risks along the way. But I think, you know, pretty much 
every study that we've done shows that people dramatically underestimate the the cost of uh, delivering the sort of retirement income that they're hoping to achieve. Um, Ramsey or Hallett, would you like to add any comments to that? Graham, I, I wholeheartedly uh, agree that we need to start early and often. And, and I think it's so important that we really double down on financial education and empowerment in midlife and late life. Um, I love seeing the movement domestically um, here in the States in regard to embedding financial literacy in school systems and starting at that elementary level. And we recognize that the National Council on Aging, first, it's never too late to start saving. And second, at midlife and later life, it's all the more critical that you get those decisions right. And so we need to have some infrastructure in place, some public and private sector collaborations to make sure we're providing that type of support in navigating financial decision making at such a critical point in life course. And we really haven't made that investment um, in terms of financial education, but it's it's time to think about what does that look like? And are the educational strategies, are the financial products and services as relevant as they need to be given this multi-stage nonlinear life, given needs related to income shocks, uh, which may um, be related to caregiving for some? So how do we make sure we sort of modernize uh, our approach to the education and the products and services to meet contemporary needs? Additionally, how do we make sure that the educational approaches are culturally responsive to populations that maybe haven't traditionally engaged with the financial services sector? How do we make sure the workforce is representative so people can see themselves um, in the um, opportunity to engage with an advisor? There's just so much opportunity there to meet people where they are, to make sure they have that uh, real navigator um, assistance needed to uh, make the most of the resources they may have available. For us at the National Council on Aging, time and time again, we see people coming up short in old age. And the products and the services that they access are just so very important because their resources may be limited and they need to do um, the very most they can with those limited resources. And they're um, often grappling for the right type of support. I think there are some great innovations in terms of fintech. Uh, I also see community-based organizations and the nonprofit sector being an extremely trusted messenger for information along with employers. Uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunity and promise there and um, would like to see some additional investments to make sure that we're utilizing those trusted institutions like community-based organizations to ramp up in this new day. If, if I could just add to what Ramsey said, I think one of the most important things for me that I heard was meet people where they are. I think that's really critical when we're talking about financial literacy because everyone is at a different place. And I think that is, that is something to really consider. The other thing that I wanted to mention is um, our report that we discussed earlier on longevity literacy has a whole section at the end where we offer actions and ideas uh, for each of the different factors that enable longevity literacy, which we've mentioned before, are quality of life, healthy aging, purpose, community connections, and financial resilience. And on the financial resilience section, we offer ideas for individuals on how they can stay financially resilient, 
how the government and the public sector can provide some new thoughts and ideas, and also for leaders, employers, and HR providers. So we can also look to the report to see what some of these um, incentives are, what some of the big ideas are that some people could take into consideration. Paula, when I think about the report, I also love the case studies that are in there. And when it comes to this topic, the midlife MOT and the idea of a midlife checkup uh, that creates a rule of thumb that encourages all of us on an annual basis to really take inventory of our financials, but also other assets that we're cultivating to live a long and healthy life absolutely resonates with me. Over the last couple decades at the National Council on Aging, we've tested digital platforms and deployed them around this concept of a checkup. All of us are very comfortable with our annual checkup. We go to the doctor's office, we get that physical. But as we think about living long and healthier lives and starting those conversations earlier in our 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond, this concept of a rule of thumb around longevity, literacy, and the need for annual checkups to look at um, different domains of our well-being really resonates. And I think there's an opportunity for a multi-sectoral collaborative in that regard. I totally agree with you, Ramsey. I think the UK is a bit ahead of the game, to be totally honest, on the way they think about some of these issues with older workers and aging populations. I think it's a great idea. And with that, I think uh, we're at time already, I'm afraid. So uh, it leaves me to say, if you'd like to download the Longevity Literacy Report, um, please go to the World Economic Forum website, where the report's available. And then I'd like to also say a big thank you to Halla, Ramsey and Lynn for joining me today. If you like what you've heard, please make sure that you subscribe for more. If you'd like to discuss anything from the podcast further, you can reach out to your local Mercer representative or email us at ctci at mercer.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>